Welcome to this episode of the Journal of Neuroophthalmology podcast. I'm Dr. Prem Subramanian, the online content editor for the journal, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Stephen Newman, professor of ophthalmology, neurology, and neurosurgery at the University of Virginia and the 2011 William F. Hoyt lecturer at the American Academy of Ophthalmology. This lecture, which was co-sponsored by NANOS, was printed in the journal, and I'm going to talk today with Dr. Newman about some of the points raised both in his article as well as in his lecture. Dr. Newman, thanks for joining us today. You're more than welcome. Delightful to be here. And we'll start out by just asking you, what, what role should a neuro-ophthalmologist play in treating patients who have orbitocranial tumors? Are we just there to diagnose the consequences, or should we take a more active role with our colleagues? Mm-hmm. Well, there's no question that neuro-ophthalmology had its origins, uh, as did modern neurology, in our ability to localize pathology. And neuro-ophthalmologists maintain that throughout. Uh, we'd like to think of the entire visual system. John Jane, has, who is our chairman of neurosurgery, has often stated that I've redefined neuro-ophthalmology into everything outside the dura. But I, I think we do keep in mind the fact that we are cognizant of pathology affecting the eye, the orbit, and the visual pathways, and as such, our primary role is still localization. Now, some of that localization role, of course, as you well know, has been taken over by our marked improvements in imaging and some of the other diagnostic tests we have. Uh, nonetheless, we still play a major role in putting all the pieces together diagnostically. Having said that, uh, and although there has been a tendency for neuro-ophthalmology to try to divorce itself away from the surgical aspects of ophthalmology, and I found it delightful that in in my Hort lecture, I was able to quote uh, David Kogan, who talked about the intellectual aspects of ophthalmology and not having to be worried about the surgical aspects. And I don't know that we can comp- completely not worry about things because obviously we have to hand it off to somebody else. But I think, as I tried to point out in the Hoyt lecture, that as neuro-ophthalmologists, it isn't incumbent upon us to play just a diagnostic role and that we can play a more active role in therapy. And whether that's by directing our colleagues in head and neck surgery or plastic surgery or neurosurgery, or by actually participating in, in some of those things. And I've been lucky enough that I've been in an environment where I've been able to be a very active participant, uh, both with uh, ENT, uh, head and neck surgery, plastic surgery, and neurosurgery throughout the 32 years I've been at the University of Virginia. They've been very kind to me, and I think it's benefited our patients, the team approach that we've utilized in dealing with these patients, especially for uh, orbital disease where historically uh, neurosurgery played a very, very important role. And in fact, I'm just reviewing the book written by Dandy, published in 1941, on a neurosurgical approach to orbital tumors. And I found it interesting that the preface to that was written by Alan Woods, who was then chairman of ophthalmology, who pointed out uh, the ophthalmic limitations of the traditional lateral orbital approaches defined by Crohnline in terms of dealing with tumors. If the tumor happened to be on the medial side or superior to the optic nerve, you had a real problem. And as Dandy pointed out, if there was any intracranial extension, which was very hard to diagnose before we had imaging, uh, then it was almost impossible for an ophthalmic surgeon to deal with the tumors. And he really introduced the concept of altering the approaches to lesions in and around the orbit depending on its location with regard to the optic nerve and whether or not it extended into other uh, areas. Now, we're lucky these days because of the advancements in imaging that we have that we can define these preoperatively. I'm lucky enough to have been around before the advent of CT scanning 
where, to quote Jack Kennerdale, we were often dealing with pathology in that dark, bloody hole, because if there wasn't findings on plane films, we really didn't know what we were getting into in the orbit until we literally got into it. These days, we can have a better idea of what sort of approach to take based on where the lesion is with regard to the optic nerve uh, and the surrounding structures, and also what we think it is based on the characteristics on imaging studies, which really has improved our ability to, to deal with these lesions. And uh, I, I continue, and I, I know many of our colleagues do at other institutions, uh, to work with these, with the ENT, head and neck surgery, and neurosurgery with regard to lesions that affect the orbit, uh, either primarily in the orbit or extending uh, from intracranial. And, and you have to also define your goals. Are we really going to cure this? Uh, are we relieving symptomatology? Do we simply want to make a diagnosis? And that allows us to recognize the fact that one size doesn't fit all, that we can tailor both the approach to what we hope to accomplish, but also where the, where the lesion is and what we think the lesion is. With the advent of mm -hmm. imaging and especially intraoperative navigation mm -hmm. techniques, use of mm -hmm. microsurgery and microscopes, mm -hmm. do you think our goals have changed, that we are better able to go into the surgery knowing ahead of time mm -hmm. that perhaps we can achieve mm -hmm. a surgical cure in this case and we use those tools to help guide us to get that last little bit and maybe plan a little better in terms of our counseling of our patients? Well, certainly imaging has totally revolutionized not just intracranial surgery, but also intraorbital surgery. And in fact, you could actually argue that it's, it's revolutionized intraorbital surgery even more than intracranial surgery because we really had no other options. We didn't have air studies that Dandy had introduced. Uh, we didn't have angiography that Muniz had introduced. We had nothing in the orbit. We, we had plane films and we could examine the orbit clinically, but we had nothing else until imaging came along. So that was a dramatic improvement uh, on our options. Uh, we also, uh, neuronavigation I think can be helpful, although probably less so than with intracranial pathology because most of the time you've got a pretty good idea of where things are. Certainly for re-ops we use neuronavigation all the time, although I don't tend to use it routinely, although when I'm working with our analogy group they tend to use it all the time just because it's a safety net to have there in case there's a question about where you are. Um, I also find that the use of preoperative diagnostic techniques, such as finding aspiration biopsy, could be extremely helpful in trying to uh, allow us to define what our goals are going to be. Because uh, although with tumors like hemangiomas and so on, we can expect to be able to remove it completely, a lot of the tumors that we're dealing with, we're not going to cure these patients. And, and I think that you then have to define what, what the goals are. Uh, I've been lucky enough that, to have been involved in the North American Skull Bay Society since its advent, and as such, uh, I've become very cognizant of our limitations and the use of the various techniques that we have available. And defining our goals, I think, is incredibly important. People ask me why I will operate on a malignant tumor when I know it'll come back. And the answer to that is if I can improve the patient's quality of life by relieving uh, the compressive optic neuropathy or by relieving the proptosis or by improving their motility, then I've done them a favor. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as I tried to point out in the Hoyt lecture as well, there's no operation that can't make a patient worse, and therefore it is incumbent upon us to really discuss the risk-benefit ratio and the, the old, bold surgeon who thinks he's going to be able to cure everything, I think, really is a thing of the past. And we, we really want to look at these as to trying to tailor what our expectations are and, and recognizing our limitations. We, we ultimately don't win. So our goals are to make things as good as they can be for as long as they can be. And, and I think that 
that encompasses my philosophical approach to any sort of surgical approach, but that approach to anything that we're dealing with here. How can we make our patient's life better? Uh, what can we do to improve the situation? And we're lucky these days that it isn't just diagnose and we will watch the natural history of the disease. We can make modifications, and we need to identify those modifications that really make things better and those that really don't add as much to that and, and may have uh, unseen or unexpected consequences for the patient. So you mentioned fine needle aspiration mm -hmm. biopsy. You've been a real advocate of this mm -hmm. over the years, and certainly that technique has met with some criticism by others. Mm -hmm. Where do you still use it? When's it most useful to you? Well, I, I, I use fine needle aspiration biopsy a lot. I probably have the largest active series of fine needle aspiration biopsies or lesions because I've been doing it since Jack Kennerdale really introduced the concept of needle aspiration biopsy in the orbit uh, back in the very early 80s, actually starting in the, in the late 70s. Um, the idea of fine needle aspiration biopsy has been around since the 1930s and even before, just from the time that a needle was uh, introduced. But the Sloan Kettering had a large series of, fi of fine needle aspiration. Of course, they weren't so fine in those days. There were 18 16 gauge needles that were utilized, uh, being able to make a diagnosis of abdominal and other systemic tumors. And it really was courtesy of, of Jack Kennerdeal, who recognized its usefulness in dealing with pathology in and around the orbit. Now, it's been pointed out by uh, Kroll and others that if you take all comers and just put a needle into everything in the orbit, you can have a, a success rate in terms of making a specific diagnosis that may be as low as 50%. But he took literally all comers and put needles in things like cystic lesions where that's not likely to be very helpful. So I think that if you define what your goals are, and in particular, the very usefulness is defining when there's a malignancy when you think it might be something else, defining whether it's a lymphoma or leukemic infiltration, because you can utilize flow cytometry, you can utilize markers, you can utilize PCR, and you can utilize other techniques, some of which I will be showing tomorrow at the uh, 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 Walsh meeting, in order to be able to make specific diagnoses on very limited amounts of tissue. And... Um, while nothing beats tissue and looking at histology, you can often get a lot of information from a fine needle aspiration. It also does not require a trip to the OR. We do these in the clinic, and I can get an answer from most of these patients, at least an immediate uh, idea of whether we've got adequate tissue, usually within 20 minutes. And in fact, these days, they will bring the microscope down there, fix the tissue on spot, and I can look at them and decide whether I have to make additional passes. So I'm a big fan of utilizing it. I recognize the fact you don't always get an answer and that there are other options available to you. You can do, go ahead and do an open biopsy later. The risks are low and in, in, in good hands. There have been uh, perforations of the globe reported. Fortunately, I've never had that. You do see hemorrhages afterwards, but never enough that I've ever had to decompress an orbit for that. They'll all clear on their own, at least the ones that, that I've, ha I've had. So I'm, I'm a big fan of its utilization, but recognize its limitations. No, that's great to hear, and mm -hmm. it's really tremendous to sort of talk about mm -hmm. the advances that have occurred over the years, mm -hmm. and uh, just want to thank you for sharing your experiences, both in the Hoyt Lecture as well as today. So thank you very much. You're more than welcome.